As Amy and I preached together this fall, looking at the Old Testament text of the lectionary and the Gospel of Matthew, <clears throat> we're following for several weeks the story from the book of Exodus. This morning's text is the end of the story. You know this story well. If you're like me as a child, uh, I watched Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments, and that story of the Israelites uh, fleeing from Egypt and getting to the Red Sea, it was told then, um, and Moses, Charlton Heston, raising his hand and parting the waters of the Red Sea, and the people walked through, and I remember seeing that scene, and the fish in those walls of water, even maybe a shark or a whale swimming through those walls of water, those memories are seared in my mind. This is the end of that story. The Israelites had been in bondage in Egypt for many generations. Moses comes along as the savior of the people, leads the people out of bondage, and they go into the wilderness and they're wandering, and then Pharaoh changes his mind. Well, the text actually says God hardens the Pharaoh's heart so that the Pharaoh will go back out and chase after the people. And so the people find themselves on the bank of the sea, um, the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, as the text actually says, on the bank of the sea. And looking up, they find the, the Egyptian army pursuing them. And they come to Moses and they complain, what have you done? It would have been better if we had stayed in Egypt. We, we were better off in Egypt. And they're there complaining, and Moses goes to God, and then we come to this part of the story. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. And the Israelites went out into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptian pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the army and threw the Egyptian army into a panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back over the Egyptians upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand before the sea and at the dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in God's servant, Moses. A lot of questions modern people have about this text and about what happens here. 
and I want to ask you to suspend some of your critical judgment about that and hear this basic story. The people backed up against the sea ask, what are we to do? They find themselves between a rock and a hard place with no way out, and God is their salvation. You have heard the ancient story. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. If you have lived much at all, you have been there. But it's a place with no address. I can't tell you how to find it. Like the old guy at the gas station when somebody asked for directions and he said with no sense of irony, no, you can't get there from here. You've probably been between a rock and a hard place, even though you cannot map its latitude and longitude, which is a good thing. No one would ever try to find it, but it is reality. So familiar to the human condition that there are many clever expressions to describe it. The French say, between the sledgehammer and the anvil. The English coined the phrase, between the devil and the deep blue sea. In ancient Rome, they said, with a precipice in front and wolves behind, or they would say, don't get caught between the sacrum and the saxum, that is, between the sacrifice and the stone, the sacrum and the saxum. We have all been between a rock and a hard place with no way out. Now, if you could see that sermon title in print, perhaps you would appreciate the irony of the redundancy a little more. Of course, if you are between a rock and a hard place, there is no way out. That's what between a rock and a hard place means. Amy and I grew up in Clinton, South Carolina, the home of Presbyterian College. Some Clintonians insist on calling it PC College with no recognition that saying PC college just means Presbyterian college, college. It's redundant. So between a rock and a hard place with no way out is intentionally redundant. There's no way out of that place where there's no way out. And this is the story of faith from the very beginning. In the beginning, the earth was a formless void there was no light, no life, no faith or hope, no love, just a formless void. And then an infinite universe teeming with life because God said, let it be so. Later in the story, God decides to create a partnership with a specific people. And of all people with whom to start, God picks a 99-year-old couple. God promises to make a great nation, a family of nations for them. And God picks Abram and Sarah. And when Abram tells his wife, well beyond childbearing years, Sarah laughs. What hope is there in beginning a whole nation with those two old geezers? And then Isaac is born. It's a miracle. There is hope for that promised family, for an entire nation after all. And then God asked Abraham to take Isaac up to the mountain and offer him as a sacrum on the Saxon to slaughter his hope on the stone. 
What's going on in the biblical story? Have you noticed how many women, so-called barren women, are named in the Bible? Isaac's wife, Rebecca, Jacob's wife, Rachel, Samson's mother, Manoah, Samuel's mother, Hannah. Each of these characters plays a critical role in the biblical story. Is this a coincidence of history? And then there's a virgin girl named Mary. Now, how does a virgin girl have a baby? But Jesus is born. Amazing. And those around him say, he is the one, Emmanuel, the one we have waited for. He is our hope, our bread, our life. And then the Romans nailed him to a cross and he died and was in the tomb for three days, which in that ancient world that didn't know anything about science was just the way to confirm that someone was officially, legally, really dead. Three days dead was dead. No hope. Do you hear what's going on in the biblical story? All of these stories of barrenness, of no hope of life, and then of help where there was no hope. This is not coincidence. And this is not just history that the writers are conveying. This is theology at work. The writers of the biblical narrative are telling us the same thing over and over and over again with redundancy. When there is no hope, no life, no light, God shines. When you're between a rock and a hard place, God shows up. When there is no way out, God saves the day. Now today's story is just the story of faith told one more time all over again. A commentator named John Holbert says this is nothing less than the Jewish resurrection story. Out of death appeared life and a future with God. The Israelites have been freed from bondage. Moses has miraculously led them to freedom. And then with the sea at their back, they look up to find the full force of the Egyptian army in their face. They are between a rock and a hard place with no way out. In his insightful commentary, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann notes that when the Israelites come to Moses, and this happens before today's text, but they see what's going on and the Israelites are afraid and they come to Moses to complain, Brueggemann says they mention Egypt or the Egyptians five times in their complaint to Moses, but never once utter the name of God. Brueggemann interprets the text this way. Moses refuses to accept this despairing picture of reality. Moses says those who are complaining, theirs is the distortion of reality, for it eliminates Yahweh as an active player. Thus, in his response, Moses twice mentions God. 
His entire self-defense is staked on the claim that Yahweh is indeed live and active, the decisive character in this crisis. Thus, the dispute turns on the, on the relevance or irrelevance of Yahweh to the crisis. So it is today. With the world churning around us, chaos seemingly at every turn, protest and pandemic and wildfire and tropical storm, a culture war that literally threatens the future of the nation, angry people who have no interest in listening to one another, understanding one another, a political dysfunction that leaves no room for dialogue, that offers no grace, so-called leadership that hobbles truth, that weakens the very essence of integrity at every turn. Has it ever been worse? Have we ever faced a more decisive moment? Are we between a rock and a hard place with no way out? What will we do? Where will we turn? For people of faith, the dispute turns on the relevance or the irrelevance of Yahweh to the crisis. We could take our cues from the fearful Israelites, ironically the so-called chosen ones, those who were supposed to be full of faith, but those who in the moment of crisis had not even enough faith to see God in their midst. Or we could take our cue from Moses, who saw that our only help is the ultimate source of hope and life, of light and love. Moses says when you're between a rock and a hard place, there is a way out. I'm reading a book of Walter Brueggemann's prayers. It's called Prayers for a Privileged People. His in prayer entitled Exile was written for today, even though he penned this prayer several years ago, I close with this prophetic word of hope, exile. Like the ancients, we know about ashes and smoldering ruins and collapse of dreams and loss of treasure and failed faith and dislocation and anxiety and anger and self-pity for we have watched the certitudes and entitlements of our world evaporate. Like the ancients, we are a mix of perpetrators, knowing that we have brought this on ourselves, and a mix of victims, assaulted by others who rage against us. Like the ancients, we weep in honesty at a world lost and the dread silence of your absence. We know and keep busy in denial, but we know. Like the ancients, we refuse the ashes and watch for newness. Like them, we ask, can these bones live? Like the ancients, we ask, is the hand of the Lord shortened that the Lord cannot save? Like the ancients, we ask, will you at this time restore what was? And then, we wait. 
We wait through the crackling of fire and the smash of buildings and the mounting body count and the failed fabric of medicine and justice and education. We wait in a land of strangeness, but there we sing songs of sadness, songs of absence, belatedly songs of praise, acts of hope, gestures of Easter, gifts you have yet to give. We are between a rock and a hard place, but there is a way out. May it be so. In this sermon series this fall, The Journey with Moses and The Journey with Jesus, we're attempting to make the two texts talk to each other. How does the prescribed text from the Moses story connect with the prescribed text from the Jesus story? Now there's about a thousand ways to preach each text. My preaching professor taught me, let a text say just one thing at a time. In preparing a sermon, preachers are inclined to cover too much ground. I couldn't help but chuckle. Uh, we are sharing, obviously, back and forth uh, our ideas about how to make these two texts talk to each other, but I didn't know Russ was going to go through the whole expanse of Scripture uh, to cover his point, his one point. But uh, anyway, preachers are inclined to cover too much ground. We would do better, my professor would say, to make just one point and stay true to the text. So I'm going to make one point on this journey with Jesus today, and that one point will be a response to what Russ has offered from Moses' journey. When you come to the end of the road and it seems there's no way out, when you are caught between a rock and a hard place, forgiveness may just be the way home. In this brief exchange between Peter and Jesus that I'm about to read to you from Matthew's Gospel, Peter wants to know how many times he has to forgive a fellow person in faith if they do him wrong. Peter suggests seven times, would that be good? I'm guessing he was feeling rather generous with that. I mean, it'd be once a day, wouldn't that be enough? I can only imagine Jesus chuckling just a little bit. Oh, Peter, bless your heart. That ain't going to be close to enough. Jesus then offers an outrageous answer to Peter's outrageous question. Peter sees forgiveness as a transaction, a mathematical accounting, if you will. Jesus sees forgiveness as a way of life. It would have been like asking Jesus, how many times should I love Jesus? And Jesus would have said, all the time. Well, if you're going to participate in love and relationship, then you might as well get used to the idea that forgiveness then will have to be all the time as well. Jesus gives Peter a numerical response to his how many times question and then he throws a parable on him like any good rabbi would have done. So hear this text from Matthew's Gospel, the 18th chapter, beginning with verse 21. 
Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to Peter, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. And actually, scholars say that the better translation of that would have been 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all of his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before the king saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him his debts. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him in prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. And then his Lord summoned him and said, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You've heard the ancient story. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. Apparently, there's only one thing that's unforgivable, and that's not having a forgiving spirit. But I will confess that I have been so distracted by the end of the parable this week. It seems so harsh, so quick, so rash. It's so out of character. Come on, Jesus. You just said there was no end to forgiveness. And then the story ends so abruptly with such severe condemnation. Honestly, I've been stumped and stuck all week by the end of the story, but I finally had to get over it and realize it's a parable, and a parable is a story told to convey a bigger truth, and the use of hyperbole is often used to drive the point home. In other words, forgiveness is so, so, so important. Forgiveness is so vital that to be unforgiving is the only thing that's unforgivable. Now just to put the whole parable into cultural context, let me translate the money figures. But before I translate the money figures, I have to tell you about another distraction in this story. Peter asks how many times he is to forgive a church member who has sinned against him. And Jesus was, responds with an example of 
a debt that is to be paid. Now this is distracting to me because in our day and time, we are not real big on debt forgiveness. But I don't have time to deal with the distractions. This is where we need a sermon talk back to talk about all of those things. So I'm gonna forge ahead and lay those distractions aside and tell you that a talent was about 130 pounds of silver and was equivalent to about 15 years of a laborer's wages, which means that the servant owed the master about 150,000 years of labor. In other words, the story was told, again, that exaggeration here to drive home a point, in a million years, the slave would have never been able to repay the, the debt to his master. A denarius, by comparison, was worth about a day's wage, which meant that that second servant owed the forgiven one about a hundred days of labor, which is no small debt, but anybody that can add and think recognizes that 150,000 years of labor was forgiven, surely this smaller amount of a hundred days of labor should be forgiven. Commentator David Luce says that the, the second servant did not forgive, the, the servant did not forgive the second servant because it all has to do with a penchant for counting calculating and keeping track. For while the unforgiving servant's debt to his master has been wiped clean, he immediately moves on to the ledger he is incessantly keeping and focuses on the debt his fellow servant owes him. Peter started the whole conversation by asking Jesus for a number. He wants to know just how much is expected of him, how much is reasonable, how much will be required. And Jesus turns Peter's question on its head by replying with a ridiculous, even impossible reply. You want to play the numbers game, Peter? Jesus asks. How about this one? It's not that Jesus wants Peter to increase his forgiveness quota. It's that he wants him to stop counting altogether. Because forgiveness, like love, is inherently and intimately relational rather than legal and therefore cannot be counted. The journey with Moses today posed the conundrum, when there seems no way out, what do we do? Well, one response that Jesus makes is simply that forgiveness is a way out. A way out of our anger. Forgiveness is a way out of the wrestling in our gut that won't go away. Forgiveness is a way out of feeling sorry for ourselves. Forgiveness is a way out of holding the grudge. Forgiveness is a way out of seeking revenge. Forgiveness is a way out of the incessant internal dialogue that goes on in our minds. Forgiveness is a way out of hate, a way out of hurt, a way out of betrayal. Forgiveness is even a way out of self-loathing. 
I'm indebted to artist and writer Jan Richardson for some new thoughts about forgiveness. She says, she asked the question, do you know people or do you define forgiveness in these impossible ways? So listen to these ways that she has heard people defining forgiveness. Forgiveness means excusing or overlooking the harm that has been done to us and saying everything is okay. Forgiveness means allowing those who have hurt us to persist in their behavior. Forgiveness requires forgetting what has happened. This is my pettest peeve. When people say forgive and forget is the worst slogan ever. You can't forget. And so you set up this horrible scenario. Well, I can't forget, so I guess I can't forgive. No, forgive and remember. And every time you remember, you get the opportunity to forgive again. And if you could believe that forgiveness is a way out, then that would be a gift that keeps giving. Some people think forgiveness requires, uh, forgiveness is something we can do at will and always at once. Jan Richardson says, if we have absorbed any of these distorted beliefs about forgiveness, it can come as both a shock and a relief to learn that such ideas would be foreign to Jesus. Clearly, he expects us and requires us to forgive, yet in his teaching about forgiveness, nowhere does Jesus lay upon us the kinds of burdens we have often placed upon ourselves. Burdens that can make one of the most difficult spiritual practices impossible. She goes on to say that the heart of forgiveness is not to be found in excusing harm or allowing it to go unchecked. It is to be found rather in choosing to say that although our wounds will change us, we will not allow them to forever define us. Forgiveness does not ask to ask us to forget the wrong done to us, but instead to resist the ways it seeks to get its poisonous hooks in us. Forgiveness asks us to acknowledge and reckon with the damage so that we will not live forever in its grip. I can't help but think that perhaps Jesus would suggest that one way out might just be forgiveness. It's not an easy way out, but it is a way that leads to healing and liberation and hope. May it be so. Amen.